Life is humbling, isn't it? Think about what experiences have most produced humility in your life. A lot of the humbling in my life has been, I think, a result of parenting and also the aging process. I think a lot of us find that to be humbling as we experience the slow natural losses involved there physically and mentally. On a spiritual level, also as we age, for many it becomes more and more apparent how desperately we are utterly dependent upon the grace and mercy of God that keeps us in relationship with him after we've sinned and repented and sinned and repented. I think that's the reason in John chapter 8 when the Pharisees bring to Jesus the woman caught in adultery and he responds by saying, he that is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And that the accusers are so convicted in their consciences that they leave the scene one by one beginning from the oldest. See, I think that's a part of aging is that you are more and more convicted by your dependence upon the grace of God for all the times that he has forgiven you in the past. Socially speaking, over time, after a while, I think we've all had enough social blunders that even when we do our best, it is no longer a surprise when we lose face yet again. And being humbled by our own flaws, our miscalculations, and even sins can range from like this little feeling of awkwardness to deep, painful regret. Plato's observation that, quote, the first and greatest victory is to conquer yourself, I think is true both when it comes to self-control, you know, conquering yourself, but also... I think in the area of humility, because there's so many advantages to getting over yourself, like conquering yourself in that way. Of I think it's really interesting in scripture how God prefers to use humble people to do amazing God-glorifying things. Like in Numbers 12, verse 3, um, that's where God's lawgiver in the Old Testament, Moses, is said to be very humble. In fact, the most humble man on the face of the earth. Think about powerful King David, a repentant man after God's own heart. Um, he says in Psalms 131 verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me, unquote. I mean, he's a king, and still he can say this with all honesty. And then also in Acts 20, verse 19, um, the apostle Paul was serving the Lord, he said, with all humility and with tears and with trials. And of course, when God himself becomes flesh, he chooses to be born in a humble city from a less prominent tribe in Israel in a shelter where animals lived with an animal food trough or manger as a bassinet. I mean, this is God himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, 5 through 12, Paul is being humbled by something very, very painful, so much so that it is described as a thorn in his flesh. By inspiration, Paul writes something important that we need to take to heart. He said this thorn in the flesh was given to him to keep him from exalting himself and so that he could learn two things first that God's grace was sufficient for him some translations read my grace is enough for you 
So it's not that I'm enough or that you're enough. And I hear a lot of people saying that to each other right now. But really the truth is that God's grace is enough to get us through. The second reason Paul was being humbled was so that the power of Christ could dwell in him. We learn from Paul's experience that when hardships come, we can also use them to learn humility and to show how good God is at comfort and support and granting us that peace that passes understanding. In this way, physical weakness or other thorns in the flesh can lead to spiritual strength if we choose to allow them. What a reminder for you and I not to waste our pain. Look especially in verse 11 in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul acknowledges that even with all the signs and wonders and miracles that God performed through him and the other most eminent apostles, that they were still, he calls them a nobody. So I guess that's the point, isn't it? All glory is God's alone. When Colossians 3, 12 through 14 says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, we learn that humility is not something that we're born with, but rather is something that we choose or choose not to put on. So let's choose to put on humility because the thing is, as Augustine puts it, Humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. Without putting on humility and the other qualities mentioned in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, you and I are spiritually naked. By that I mean your soul is exposed and vulnerable to the forces of evil. In fact, Samuel Butler puts it this way, quote, there is no man so unsafe as he that is too proud to be told the truth or have his errors taken notice of, unquote. Humility is so valuable that it is at the very heart of our relationship with God. Colossians 138 verse 6 explains that if we want to be close to God, that he regards the lowly, but the haughty, he knows from afar. 1 Peter 5 5 is a similar reminder of how humility is at the heart of our relationship with God when it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And boy, do we need that grace, right? In this world so full of darkness, we also desperately need God to hear our prayers. But whose prayers does God hear? Second Chronicles 34:27 says that God hears us when one, our heart is tender, and two, when we humble ourselves before him. He not only hears the humble, Isaiah 57:15 says God even dwells with those who have a contrite and lowly spirit and revives the heart of the contrite. When Proverbs 3:34 says that God quote mocks mockers but shows favor to the humble unquote, the honest truth is that God does not respect those who act disrespectfully, but to the humble, he gives a grand prize, his favor. And hey, if that is all you have at the end of your life is the favor of God, you will have 
everything that matters. I mean, you have won all the showcases if you have won the favor of God. You'd think that it would be the slick manipulators or even the most powerful dictators that would inherit the land, so to speak, and delight themselves in abundant peace. But surprise plot twist, it is actually the meek that God says will inherit the land. Psalms 37, 11. In Psalms 51, 17, when the word of God says, quote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Can you hear the humbleness in that? A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, unquote. We learn that God loves a broken and contrite heart. What that means is that when our own sin breaks our own heart in God's sight, that is worship to him. That is like a sacrifice. That's how beautiful your humbleness is before him. Humbleness is beautiful to him, but pride? C.S. Lewis noted, it is through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense, unquote. There's a lot of talking up pride right now in our culture and even parades celebrating pride. But what does God say about pride? God says in Proverbs 11 too, that when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. It is a disgrace, isn't it? Where pride has led our country, especially what pride-filled people are doing to the souls of children right now. God is right. God is always right. And he says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. So how do you know when you've met a humble person? Is it when they keep putting themselves down, sometimes in an effort to try to get you to say something nice about them? No. Listen, humility is not low self-esteem. C.S. Lewis helps us understand this a little bit better when he says, quote, when you meet a really humble man, he will not be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less, unquote. So we do best to neither praise nor dispraise ourselves, but humility is rather about thinking of others with a genuine interest. Low self-esteem envies the strengths in others instead of being inspired by those strengths. You see, one can be both confident and humble. We see that in our Savior. With the humble, their confidence is in the Lord, Proverbs 3.26. So let's explore now what genuine humility does. Well, Micah 6.8 answers that question for us when it says, quote, God has told us what is good and what he requires to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God, unquote. So walk humbly with our God. 
It means living because walking obviously is something that most of us do all day, every day as we live. So genuine humility walks humbly with God, pouring out our hearts to him, confessing our weaknesses, and listening to him by reading and obeying his word. In contrast, we learn in Luke 18, 14, what humility does not do in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. It says, starting in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and while he was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Unquote. The point is this, we must be most disgusted by our own sins rather than most disgusted by the sins of those around us. And when we witness people in the depth of wickedness, we do best to remember there I would be except for the grace of God. Well, what else does genuine humility do? Philippians 2, 2-3 says that when we are humble, we count others more significant than ourselves. There's a side benefit of this that you may not have noticed. When you are used to genuinely counting others more significant than yourself, you can celebrate the successes of others and gain a sort of immunity from envy. Thomas Fuller says, quote, when a proud man hears another praised, he thinks himself injured, unquote. You guys, that is no happy way to live. In the church and out and about in the community, instead of looking for people to be with who will somehow benefit us or raise our social status, we should instead be associating with the lowly and thinking about how we might be able to help or even better, like empower them. In other words, thinking about how we could help them help themselves. Romans 12, 16 is a great reminder of this when it says to not be arrogant, but be friendly to humble people. Don't think of yourself smarter than you really are, unquote. So Jesus showed us by example that humility washes the feet of others, adding, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet, John 13, 14 through 16. You see, the truth is there's nothing noble in being superior to someone else. In fact, true nobility is in excelling still more and only being superior to who you used to be. In Christianity, it is the first who will be last, and the last who will be first. In fact, one author had some great ideas about what humble service looks like in our culture, sort of our culture's version of foot washing. And so I've kind of strung together many of his ideas in order to share them with you because they are so practical. He says, quote, real servants do what's needed even when it's inconvenient. Servants see interruptions as divine appointments for ministry and are happy for the opportunity to practice serving. Servants are always on the lookout for ways to help others. 
We miss many occasions for serving because we lack sensitivity and spontaneity. Great opportunities to serve never last long. They pass quickly, sometimes never to return again. You may only get one chance to serve that person, so take advantage of the moment. Before attempting the extraordinary, try serving in ordinary ways. Jesus specialized in menial tasks that everyone else tried to avoid, washing feet, helping children, fixing breakfast, and serving lepers. Nothing was beneath him because he came to serve. It wasn't in spite of his greatness that he did these things, but because of his greatness. Servants finish their tasks, fulfill their responsibilities, keep their promises, and complete their commitments. They don't leave a job half undone, and they don't quit when they get discouraged. They are trustworthy and dependable. Real servants don't serve for the approval or applause of others. They live for an audience of one. You won't find many servants in the limelight. They are content with quietly serving in the shadows because they remember they are loved. Servants don't have to prove their worth. To be a servant requires a mental shift, a change in your attitudes. God is always as interested in why we do something as in what we do. We can measure our servant's heart by how we respond when others treat us like servants. How do we react when you are taken for granted or bossed around or if someone takes unfair advantage of you? Use the occasion to practice the servant life. Servants don't compare, criticize, or compete with other servants or ministries. They're too busy doing the work God has given them. We're all on the same team. It's our goal is to make God look good, not ourselves. There's no place for petty jealousy between servants. When you're busy serving, you don't have time to be critical. Any time spent criticizing others is time that could have been spent ministering. It's not our job to evaluate the master's other servant. Your service to Christ is never wasted, regardless of what others say. Jesus knew who he was, so the task of washing the disciples' feet didn't threaten his self-image, unquote. And those ideas are from author Rick Warren. So the next point is that humility listens to advice. In Proverbs 12:15, God says we're foolish when we do what we think is right without listening to wise advice. C.S. Lewis says on this that God, quote, wants a child's heart, but a grown-up's head. He wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, and teachable, as good children are. But he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be alert at its job and in first-class fighting trim, unquote. So humbleness then both listens to advice, but does not blindly follow that advice if the advice is in conflict with a biblical principle. Let's think about now what humility looks like in conflict. I like this advice that we should look upon the person who tells you what you are doing wrong, like he told you where treasure has been hidden. Correction is a treasure because it's the chance to not be wrong anymore, which is fantastic because now you can do what's right, which always has fabulous side effects. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, quote, let me never fall under the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am persecuted whenever I am contradicted. 
that's almost frameworthy in this day and age where so many people think that they are being persecuted by those who simply disagree. Winston Churchill set a great example of the opposite mindset when he said, quote, so long as I am acting from duty and conviction, I'm indifferent to taunts and jeers. I think they will probably do me more good than harm, unquote. Wow. I mean, if we all had that attitude of caring more about duty and conviction than social acceptance, maybe we could win this culture war against the present day enemies of goodness, like Winston Churchill did against the Nazis. Author Kevin DeYoung challenges our level of humility and conflict when he asks, are you willing to change your mind when another person's case has more merit than yours? Are you able to hear good advice when it comes from some mouth other than your own and may even contradict your preconceived ideas? Are you willing to admit, I didn't think of that, or I see your point? Here's another quality of true humility. I'd like to introduce it by asking, is there an achievement or another area of your life where you tend to lean on for confidence rather than on God? Maxwell Anderson asked this profound three-word question, and it is this, what price glory? We all have something battling to be our confidence instead of God. But maturing toward humility can be measured by our focus on advancing Jesus and our focus on the cause of Christ continually increasing as we personally are continually decreasing. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says simply, love does not boast. And Proverbs 27.2 reminds us, quote, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips, unquote. So if we're going to be praised, it should be by another person rather than ourselves because bragging is both repulsive to God and other humans. There's some good advice that Andrea So has that I think helps us to avoid inadvertently looking arrogant in our conversations. She says, quote, it is not smart to slip into your conversations, little boasts about yourself, like the college you went to, the degrees you earned, the plum positions you held. First of all, it sounds proud and diminishes you ever so slightly in the eyes of the other person. Secondly, it sets a trap for your own feet because eventually, think about it, if you develop a relationship with the person that you're speaking to, he or she will find out your true measure. If you have presented yourself too highly, your fall in his esteem will be worse. If, on the other hand, you have wisely refrained from boasting, your new friend will be continually delighted with pleasant discoveries about you, which will be all the more pleasing to him because you did not brag at all. This is just another application of Jesus' parable about taking the lowest versus the highest seat at a formal dinner, Luke 14. I appreciate her good point here that if we go around always bringing up our achievements, we rob others of the unexpected delight of discovering our achievements on their own. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 reminds us of how crazy it is to brag when God is the one who not only gave us every physical and intellectual ability we have, but also puts us in a time and place where opportunities could surface to use them. It says, quote, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, unquote. I mean, that's why all glory is God's, right? 
The, the only accomplishment truly bragworthy is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Galatians 6.14. So switching gears here, what blessings come to those who are genuinely humble? I mean, there are several that I'd like to share. First off, 2 Corinthians 7.14 says, God will hear from heaven and will forgive our sin and heal our land if we humble ourselves pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. Well, there is the answer to all that ails our nation in a single Bible verse. It was the way back for Israel in the Old Testament and remains our nation's way of healing our land as well. Repent or perish, dudes. This is our, <laughs> this is our options. The option for any nation is always to repent or perish for real. We would do well to repent rather than perish. The next blessing of humility is the kingdom of heaven, because in Matthew 5, 3, it says only the poor in spirit are promised the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 18, 2 through 4, we see again that humbling ourselves like a child opens up to us the kingdom of heaven and the blessings therein, like being delivered up to God when this earth is no more, because it's the kingdom of God that is delivered up to him in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. The third blessing that I'll talk about around being humble is in Matthew 20, verse 26, where God deems those who take the role and work of servants as greatest of all. He says there, Rick Warren says, the world defines greatness in terms of power, possessions, prestige, and position. God determines your greatness by how many people you serve, not by how many people serve you. And then finally, Proverbs 22, verse 4, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. I mean, if not physically, certainly spiritually. Proverbs 15.33 mentions honor again when it says humility comes before honor. Before we conclude our time together, uh, just a little cautionary advice about a sneaky pitfall around humility. I mean, it's kind of an ironic pitfall, but quite real. And that is being proud of any virtue, including humility. Kind of like, look how humble I am. Someone has noted to be proud of a virtue is to poison yourself with the antidote. And I think that's true. We can even make our own intellect into an idol if we misuse knowing things and teaching things as a social stepping stone to try to promote ourselves instead of using what we've learned to inspire others and lift them up. So truly, to be proud of knowledge is to be blind with light, as Benjamin Franklin said. So in closing, wow, we have got a lot to be humble about, my friend. Even the highest achievers out there have a lot to be humble about because we owe a debt of gratitude, for example, both to God and for all the sacrifices people made before us that have opened up so many opportunities for us to do what we can do for the glory of God. I mean, sacrifices that resulted in our political freedoms and even our advances in technology that help us communicate so easily with people that we've never met. Isaac Newton, the brilliant physicist and mathematician, humbly noted, if I have been able to see farther than others, it is because I stood on the shoulders of giants. I think we can all say the same thing in whatever God has used us to accomplish. So may God bless you this week as you humble yourself under his mighty, mighty hand. To him be all glory.